This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some stacked on the, on the sides here on these shelves. We'd love for you to grab a copy of God's Word as we go through it together. And let it be a gift from us if you don't have a copy at home. We'd love for you to have a copy. Luke chapter 8, we'll be looking at those verses in front of you, verses 40 through 56. We read it, and then we'll ask the Lord to help us as we look through it together. This is God's Word. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house. He allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from seeing these amazing stories. And then walking away being exactly the same. Having our thinking be exactly the same. We pray that you would work through the power of your word to change us today. Whether we're here and we're not a Christian and we've never thought about these things before or we've been walking with you for some time and just grown familiar with all the brokenness in our world and, and live on kind of a, an empty level of hope enjoy. Would you work in us, Lord, not just to know this information, to know this story, 
but to apply it, to walk out the truths that are here, that you are authoritative, powerful, you reign over all, and we can rest in you, have peace in you, not be crippled by fear. Lord, we pray that you would do that work in us. We pray that you would come, that Christ would be exalted. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've said that uh, Luke chapter 8 is a bit of like a, like a show and tell. Uh, it begins with uh, an emphasis on Jesus' teaching. And uh, he's, he's, he's teaching particularly that parable of the, of the soils about the gospel and the word of God and how it goes out and particularly how it's received and why it's not received. And he explains that to his disciples. There's this theme of, of hearing and obeying that we followed through the chapter uh, in multiple ways. Good fruit looks like hearing in faith and then obeying the words of Jesus, walking those words out. Those that do that, those that bear that fruit, that walk out in obedience, the, the teaching of Jesus, Jesus says are, are his family, even closer than his own blood relatives. So we go through this section on teaching, but then there's a transition where there are these dramatic episodes that they themselves teach who Jesus is. And so he begins with the, the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And then we moved right into this encounter with a man who was possessed by multiple demons. And Jesus delivers the man from the demons and sends them away and then sends him out to go proclaim all that God had done for him. And now the climax of this chapter comes when Jesus is going to heal a woman with a terrible disease and then raise a young girl from the dead. And so if you're keeping score at home, Jesus is showing that, that he has a comprehensive authority as a teacher over nature, over demons, over disease, and now even over death. And he is revealing himself to his disciples so that they would rely on him. They would trust in him to save them and to take care of them. And our passage today, I think, is helpful because it presents several real-life kind of practical obstacles to faith in Jesus. And I think the leader of the pack among the, the obstacles is fear. Fear expressing itself in several ways in this text. Fear of rejection, fear of embarrassment, fear of shame and exposure, fear of death. Fear often reigns in our most desperate moments. When the bad news is really fresh, when we're at the end of our rope, fear often reigns. It can drive us into a desire to just escape, escape from our circumstances, but then, if we're honest, really escape from life itself. We want out, particularly in an age of social media that that encourages this you being alone and having a kind of a fake community and being overwhelmed with all of these things in your life that, are, that you don't know what to do and fear grows and grows and is enhanced as you're by yourself. Fear can drive us away from real relationships because you think if they knew me, they would reject me or they would hurt me. 
Fear drives angst and anxiety about the future. Will God provide? What will happen to this child or this friend or this relationship or my job? I don't see any progress that I can point to. No data points that are particularly encouraging, so I fear. There's something here in this passage about God's timing and trusting God's timing, particularly his, his providence. Kent Hughes, I think, helpfully points out that the word providence comes from two Latin words, pro, before, and video, to see. Thus, when we speak of God's providence, we're saying that we're referring to things that he's, he's seeing all things before. The sovereign arrangement of all things, that's God's providence. So that theology is put to a test in this passage when there's this great interruption that forces the question, am I going to be Jairus? Am I going to be dominated by fear or faith? Life does put our theology to the test. And so we'll confess and proclaim and sing that Jesus has comprehensive authority in all of life. Nature, demons, all of our circumstances, disease, and even death. The friend says that truth make its way into our hearts. Do we believe it when we're alone? When everything feels like it's out of control? When God seems far from us? So not only do we see Jesus' comprehensive authority in this passage, I think you see multiple instances of his compassion and kindness in some of these little details that he, he does as he's serving and, and caring and loving those in the story. We see his response to those who have faith in him in desperate situations, imperfect faith, but faith that's in him nonetheless. Those that have all but given up. And so we need to apply the words that Jesus speaks to, to Jairus. We need to take those words in on board ourselves in our own hearts today. Do not fear, only believe. This is such a personal story and account. I don't know if you feel like sometimes the the woman in the crowd here, that there's so many pressing around Jesus for needs. He's not going to care about my need in particular, my situation. There's so many things, but he does. He actually stops everything to give her his undivided attention. There's a real, a real focus and emphasis on a relationship here that Jesus seeks to have with this woman. So I hope that you'll not just hear this story, but see yourself in this story, no matter who you are. So we're going to look at the story through this lens of comparison. Uh, we'll try to observe some connections and comparisons throughout, but I'm just going to mention two main comparisons as we go through. If you're taking notes, number one, we'll see two desperate people. Two desperate people. They're very different, but they're brought together by their desperation. And then number two, two saving touches. Two saving touches. These stories are are intertwined, but they come together at the feet of Jesus. He's worthy of our worship and our trust. So let's first consider these two desperate people. This story appears in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's always intertwined like this. There's always this this order. Uh, It's the only double miracle like this that we find in the Gospels. However, I do think it probably represents more of the norm than the exception in Jesus' ministry. 
kind of this commotion, this from one thing to the next, constant stops and starts, constant requests for his time. Verse 40, if you look there, it records Jesus and the disciples coming back from their trip on the lake, which if you remember, it was, it was kind of this trip to go minister to this man, and it's itself interrupted with this story of the storm to go heal the demoniac. Unlike the Gerasenes that then sent Jesus away, notice here he's welcomed. He's welcomed back on shore. People are waiting for him. And one of those who are waiting is this man named Jairus. His name means something like he will give light or he may enlighten. Luke tells us in verse 41 that he was a ruler of the synagogue. So this means he's probably the main elder in this synagogue. He's the the one who plans the worship services. He's responsible for organizing those gatherings, picking out the songs to be sung. Who's going to read the scripture? Who's going to preach? That's what Jairus would do. And he would have had a a high social standing in the community. He's a respected religious leader. And he would also have some kind of category probably for who Jesus was, both from hearing about his ministry in town, but also from being connected to the other religious leaders who are likely passing on the word about who Jesus is. And so there's this potentially, this jaded and maybe even skeptical view of Jesus. So there's Jairus. On the other end of the social spectrum is this woman with the issue of blood. And you'll, you'll know if you've, if you've read this story and thought much about the way that the Old Testament sacrificial system worked, that she is unclean. Um, she has this regular bleed that, that's occurring, perhaps some kind of uterine hemorrhage that renders her unclean. But I want us to think about the implications for what that means just for a moment for her socially. Uh, later this afternoon, if you have time, I would encourage you to go read through Leviticus 15 and, and you'll just see a picture there of her situation. It's really powerful to read through that passage thinking about this woman. But I'll just summarize. She's in a, she's in a place of perpetual uncleanness. You see that in Leviticus 15.25, which means she can't start the process of, of being restored until she's healed. And so she has to embrace a life of exile, a life of being an outcast. So she's isolated from her community because her condition is essentially contagious. So it, it, anything that, that she would touch would be rendered unclean. So the bed that she would sleep on, the chair she would sit in, the clothes that she would wear, those would all be considered unclean. And then any person who not just touched her, but came in contact with anything that she had contaminated, that she had touched, would also be rendered unclean. We don't know her personal story, but this would have had major implications on her family. It's possible that through this illness that her husband left her. If she was married or she was unable to find a husband, she was likely unable to have children. She's she's utterly alone. Unlike Jairus, who has this biological family and then this kind of spiritual family that he's engaged in, she's excluded from both. She would have been excluded from the corporate worship of God as well. So she's separated from God and from man. But these two seemingly opposite characters are then drawn together in this story. And what draws them together is their desperation. Jairus is seen falling at Jesus' feet. Begging Jesus, which is exactly what the man who was possessed with demons, if you remember, was 
was doing, falling at his feet, begging Jesus. Jairus wants Jesus to come to his house immediately. He is in desperation because, look there at verse 42, he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And we've said before in Luke that he goes out of his way to mention only children. Um, and this is another instance where he does that when it's, when it's the case throughout the gospel. So it, it, it kind of highlights the desperation in a sense. But of course, it also reminds us of another only son that is steadily making his way to Jerusalem to die. So we want to keep that big picture in our minds. We don't know her illness, just that she's on death's doorstep at 12, at the age of 12. So no parent in this room, um, there's no parenting class for this. No one, no one is prepared for this kind of desperation. And even though I haven't been in this situation, I know if I were, there's, there's nothing that I wouldn't do to try to help save one of my daughters who were dying, or children. The world would essentially stop. Nothing else matters at this point. And, and, and Jairus understands he can absolutely do nothing. Jesus is the last and only hope. He is a dad who's just watching all the dreams and future of his, this young life darken in front of his eyes. And listen, one thing about these passages is you may not right now be in a situation just like this. But friends, you need to know that you will be. You will be. And it may not be exactly like this, but you will be in a situation and God is, this is not by accident that He's preparing you for these things with situations like this. So, so here with an eye and an ear to apply for when this comes to you. Luke connects the two situations with the number 12. Maybe you noticed that as we were reading it. This, this 12-year-old is dying and there's a woman who has been dealing with this terrible bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. Verse 43, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And before we get to her, let's just see what's happening. Or Don't forget Jairus. It's just imagine Jairus just standing here with me as we're pausing to talk about this woman. All the desperation we just talked about. And Jesus is walking and these, these streets in these ancient cities were very narrow. So if there's a crowd, it is a traffic jam. It slows him down. The crowd is pressing in on him, which means he's slowing down on his way to go help Jairus' daughter. And then this whole incident happens with the woman. And Jesus stops completely to have this conversation with her. Now, the text does not comment on Jairus' mental or emotional state. It doesn't give any update on what he's thinking or what he says. But can you imagine? It's like having your child in the back of an ambulance and they are in critical condition driving down the freeway and there's an accident that slows down the, the ambulance and there's traffic and you can't get her to where you want her to go. Everything stops and there's nothing Jairus can do about it. So this is desperation times 10. 
So keep Jairus in your mind. He's, he's still standing there. And now this woman is, is in this place of this 12-year-long disease. So she's dealing with loneliness. She's dealing with isolation. And also these financial challenges that she spent all of her money on doctors with nothing to show for it. So she's in a financial crisis to boot. Luke is a little bit softer on the doctors than the other gospel authors for obvious reasons. Uh, Mark 5 says this, She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. So there was nothing that they can do. If you, if you were to read some of the, the ways that the, the, in, the, in this day, the ancient remedies for this condition... It's really just superstitious things. It's, it's, you know, taking wine and mixing in some onions and, you know, having someone stand behind you and scare you and then say it's your, go away, your, flood, your blood should go away. It's, it's not like real technical science here. But everything that they were trying wasn't working. And I think we can assume that a man of Jairus' status would have had access to whatever the best medical care was available. And there was nothing they could do for him either. So they're both helpless. They've tried all other options. And their desperation then brings them both to Jesus. They had lived such different lives up to this point. But none of that matters now. None of that matters one bit. All that matters is Jesus. It's down to Jesus. He's at the center of their attention, their whole life at this moment. Many of you can maybe say this about your own story, a coming of Jesus. It's very much... It reminds me some of mine and things in my life at a crisis point. And then desperation often serves as a prelude to grace as it shows us our need. But friends, the truth is that we are always at the end of our rope. We are always there, always in dire straits. If you ask Jairus at this point, if he'd rather go, this whole thing didn't happen, just go back to where his daughter was feeling better, of course he would say yes. But that would also take him back to being a worship leader and an elder in a synagogue who didn't know God, who didn't know Jesus Christ, who ended up would waste his life and spend an eternity in hell. So it was this crisis that brings him to Jesus. And the same, of course, is true for the woman. Would she want normalcy in her life? Of course that is going to be her prayer. I want to be married. I want to be a mom. I want to not have this pain. I want to have a family. But because of her disease, she ends up knowing Jesus. Seeing the real purpose of her life. This is our purpose in life. Our greatest need is to know and worship the living God. If you're setting goals for yourself... This is the number one goal for your children, for your grandchildren, for your friends to know and love and worship God. It's what you were made to do. And the only way to be reconciled to this God whom we've all offended because of our sin is through Jesus Christ. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ and you don't know that redemption and you don't have a relationship with the living God this morning, you are in much worse shape than Jairus or this Woman, our issues are deeper than disease and death. Those physical realities are downstream from our real problem, which is separation from God because of our sin. We are all unclean before a holy God. Paul says dead in our trespasses and sins, very much like this girl. 
is about to be. So do you sense your desperation for Jesus? Let's just observe what happens when Jesus meets us in our desperation. Let's look at the second comparison now. Two saving touches. Two saving touches. Jesus is fighting through this crowd on the way to Jairus' house when this unnamed woman decides to take action. And we don't know her thought process, but it seems that she's going to take advantage of the crowd to anonymously get close to Jesus and touch his clothes. So she has a sense, like, I'm not going to go in to, to, to face him face to face. I'm not going to even touch his skin, but just, just his clothes. That is a very risky play in and of itself. So being in a crowd, being in her situation and being in a crowd is risky. Everyone is focused on Jesus, so there's a distraction that plays to her advantage, but all it takes is one person to recognize her and call out that she's unclean and it's all over. She's exposed. And then to go and touch the teacher, touching his garment that would make him unclean for her own benefit. She benefits from him being rendered unclean, but she is that desperate. That's where she is. And so her plan is to come from behind, only touch the tassel on the edge. You just couldn't get any further, right? The tassel on the edge of his garment that would be worn by faithful Jews. We see that in Numbers 15. There's really nothing in the text that says she has a magic or superstitious belief about this. Some held that belief. She may have some mixed up thoughts about it, but at bottom she believes that just to touch the tassel on the edge of Jesus' garment would be enough to heal her. And she was right. She was absolutely right. Verse 44 she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Immediately, 12 years of suffering and isolation were over. She was instantly, just like the storm, instantly changed by the power of Jesus. But her encounter with Jesus is just beginning with this healing. I think it probably was maybe her worst nightmare to hear the words in verses 45 and 46. And Jesus said, we would assume out loud for everyone to hear, including her, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, so there's a time when they're going around the circle, did you, was it you? Was, no, was it me? Was it me? All denied it. Peter, always being helpful, Steps in, Master, let me help you understand. The crowds surround you and you, they're all pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. So everything stops. Again, Jairus standing here. Everything stops. Peter makes this observation, obvious observation. But there's no doubt in her mind that Jesus knew the difference between her unclean, faith-filled touch and all the other pressing that's happening on his body. Jesus, 
want to be careful. Jesus is not like a charging station where he's walking around as a battery that everyone can just kind of hook up to him with him not knowing what's going on and get this power for healing energy. I think Jesus not only knows what happened, but intentionally makes this happen. He chooses to heal her. And now this question that he asks her reminds me of the question God asked Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? He he calls out to them, knowing full well where they were. They were seeking to hide from him because of their sin. Even though he knew, that's a rhetorical question, he, he doesn't expect an answer. He knows, Jesus knows who touched him. So you have this, this, again, this picture of the sinful person in contact with the holy. What's going to happen? So everyone denies it, but she knows he has seen her. She is not hidden. Unlike Adam then, who hid himself, she comes out of the shadows to Jesus and confesses her faith in Jesus before the crowd. Look there at verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So she she confesses this is what happened. She confesses her faith in Jesus and she confesses her immediate healing. She knew As soon as she touched his garment that she she was healed, she knew. And yet she is afraid. Okay, so here's a a reference to fear. She's trembling. She's, She's looking now directly at Jesus. Jesus is looking directly at her. How would Jesus respond to this reaching out to him? Me being unclean. How would he respond? Would he rebuke me? Would he stone me? for making him now unclean. He doesn't seem to be unclean. He doesn't seem to be responding that way. So I think Jesus' response here in verse 48 is one of the most most beautiful sentences in Scripture. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Another connection point between the two stories. Jesus is healing two daughters. Jairus' daughter was dying, and now he refers to this woman who had no family, no one who claimed her, no one who cared for her as daughter. I like to think that she was younger, uh, or he was younger than her, because the people are like, what do you mean daughter? Jesus, Jesus can, when he says this, it's, it's perplexing, and it says so much about him that she is now being adopted. It's the only place where Jesus refers to anyone this way. Her faith in Jesus has saved her and brought her into the family of God. Jesus says it made her well. Literally, it's the same word for saved. It saved you. And I think this interaction is important for for several reasons, but it's important for her and it's important for the others around her. So one of the reasons I think Jesus means to draw her out in front of the others in public is for her good to let the miracle be made known to all. I think this is an example of Jesus' compassion and kindness because it's proclaiming to everyone around that she's no longer unclean. So that's, that's a public demonstration, a public confirmation, so that she is now able to be welcomed 
by the community into normal life and into worship. But I think it's also for her personally. that She, she, she may have wanted to just get her healing and slip away. But Jesus means to teach her that, that salvation is not transactional in this way. By faith, we are saved into a relationship with the one that we were made for. So we are saved from sin and wrath to God. There's no scenario, friends, where we do business with God and then kind of walk away and live our own life apart from God that we would truly be saved. And understand that. A great litmus test for your spiritual condition is not looking back to that time that you made a decision or that you wrote something down and that may have been a true, genuine decision in time. But right now, do you love God? Do you walk with Jesus? Do you love the one who saved you? Are you seeking to know him and serve him? So here we see that Christianity is always personal, but never private. Always personal. We ourselves personally putting our faith and trust in Jesus, but not alone. Not so that no one else knows. Not hiding away from the reality. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Friend, is your Christianity kind of privatized? Does it, does it feel like not many would know about it other than those kind of safe relationships that you see regularly at church? Even in a church our size, it's possible to hide. It's possible to hide from relationships, real relationships that talk more about than just college football or whatever's going on at work, but real relationships or to present a facade of our life that isn't reality. It's, it's possible. And I would commend uh, one way to kill that desire in you is to jump into one of those fellowship groups, jump into uh, relationships in other ways with people um, in our church that you, would, you don't know and just seek to get to know. I see some of you doing that all the time, like a heat-seeking missile. You see someone you don't know, and you're there. And that's a great encouragement to me. Let's, let's, let's learn from that. Let's do that. But the good news is that Jesus actually takes away all our reasons for hiding in the gospel. He takes away our shame and embarrassment and our guilt, things that we've done, things that we're struggling with now, that we feel embarrassed to talk about and share about. Jesus takes those things away upon himself and gives us a new standing with God as a son or a daughter of the living God. We have, listen, acceptance with God. Justification with a holy God. Peace with God. Notice he tells her, go in peace. You've been saved by your faith in Christ. Go in peace. Peace with God. Peace with others. If you have peace with God, if you don't have to be afraid to stand before the holy God of the universe, friends, that ought to change our relationships, the way that we talk about real life. We can worship God truly and be with God's people. So we can come to Jesus. I want to encourage you to come to him and walk with him. Don't hide. Don't hide anymore. So this miraculous thing takes place. Everyone's seeing it. 
Jairus is here. And it's at that very moment we read in verse 49, while he was still speaking, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Well, that, that sentence is interrupted with someone from the ruler's house coming and saying, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And you can kind of feel the hush coming over the commotion in the crowd. One woman is rejoicing the greatest day of her life, while Jairus has just heard the worst news of his life. Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. The implication there is, there's, there's multiple implications, that he was being troubled in the first place. But, but other than that, it's too late. Healing disease is one thing. Death is another. So it seems Jesus didn't manage his time in such a way that the daughter would be saved. And now there's nothing that can be done. So Jesus overhears this news and looks at Jairus and says these words, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. She will be saved. It's that word again. Jairus, I am with you. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Trust my words. Beloved, put yourself there. This is, this is not a theoretical truth. This is something that we all need to know, need to do. Some of you have walked through this, are walking through this. You will walk through this. Faith and fear are going to always be in opposition in your heart. Faith is going to be the antithesis to fear. And I'm not talking about general faith that some team would win and I would lift a certain amount of weight. I'm talking about faith in a sovereign Christ. In every situation, every anxious situation, Jesus says, trust me. In the face of bad news, desperation, despair, and discouragement, trust me. This is not simplistic. This is not trite. This is all there is. If you read the book of Job, this is, I think, the main point. Trust God when you don't know why? When you don't know why all these things happened and there's no logical reason, everything in you says don't do it. What's going on? Curse your God and die. Trust him. One illustration might help from the Blitz bombing raid in World War II. Um, the Nazis were bombing London and there was a father holding his small son by the hand and he runs from a building that had been struck by a bomb and in the front yard there's a crater a shell hole, and so he's going to look for the shelter in the shell hole. And so he goes and is holding his son's hand and comes, and the father jumps into the hole, and then he holds up his arms for his son to come and jump in into his arms, and the son just replies, I can't see you. And the father, looking up against the sky, this tinted red by the burning buildings, calls to the silhouette of his son, but I can see you. Jump. I can see you. Jesus is saying, I see you, Jairus. Listen to my voice. Trust me. For the grace to endure trials and the unknown with patience and perseverance. That's what Jairus is faced with right now. And so they get to the house. 
And now for the first time, Jesus is going to single out this inner three in his disciples. He's going to do it again. We're going to see it really clearly at the transfiguration in a few uh, passages away. Peter, John, and James. He takes them inside. He takes Jairus and his wife inside, and that's everyone else is outside. I think there's already some people inside uh, from verse 52. All those inside, I think, is, is, is referencing those already in the house, likely professional mourners crying and playing these death songs that let the, the community, the neighborhood know what is what is taking place. Verse 52, And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. She's not dead, but sleeping. Jesus is not altering it, offering an alternate diagnosis, but his perspective on her death. So she is, in fact, dead. Uh, Luke is a doctor. She, he's reporting she's dead. Her spirit has left her. Her body is cold. Her heart is not beating. But from Jesus' perspective, death is likened to sleep. It's temporary. She will wake up. This is not how the world sees death. This is not how others see death in this room. Verse 53, and they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. They laughed at Jesus knowing she was dead. So as believers, our, our priority, our goal is to see things the way Jesus sees things, to, to, to ask God to give us eyes to see the way that he sees Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So the way to view death for those that, that die in Christ, Paul says, changes the way you grieve. You either grieve with hope or you grieve as someone who says this is the end. Death is not the end. And we need not fear death as long as Jesus is in the room. Look at verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. Yeah. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Just as Jesus called Lazarus, Lazarus, just as he called the widow's son in Luke 7, he calls this little girl, and her spirit returns to her body. And she woke up as if from a dream. And the first face that she sees is the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is intentional about this. He, 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 not everybody's coming in. He's not going to make a, a spectacle out of her. And then he kindly, compassionately suggests, um, give her something to eat. Right? So his, his kindness just shown, shows through. Just, not just caring about the biggest things, the, the death, but the smallest details. And then he encourages silence as not to draw, I think, much attention to this particular miracle. Because the focus is not on the resurrection miracle, the focus is not on the healing of the disease per se. This little girl who was raised at 12, she may live to 
50 or 60 or 70 or 80, but then she will die. The woman healed from this issue of blood may, may live a long and happy life, but at some point she will die. These are not resurrected bodies that Jesus is in, uh, giving to these two ladies. The point is seeing who Jesus is, that he has come to defeat sin and death forever, and then to purchase a people for himself to redeem, to take away all pain and sadness and bring us into an unending joy. That is not in this life. There will be a resurrection that will be eternal, that is coming, like another Jesus' own bodily resurrection, his own new body. We too will have new bodies that will live forever. This is who Jesus is. And I titled this section, Two Saving Touches, because I just think it's significant that Jesus heals through touch on both occasions. And both touches are from unclean people and would technically render Jesus ceremonially unclean. And that is, friends, a picture of the gospel that Luke is presenting for us. That Jesus takes our sin. He takes our uncleanness upon himself. And by faith, we are made clean. We are made whole. In that passage in Leviticus 15, the last step, if you're having an issue with continual uncleanness and blood, and there's restoration, is for a priest to come and make atonement for the person who has that issue. Jesus is the high priest who has come to make full atonement for our sins that we might be in God's presence with his own blood. If you touch a dead person, there has to be a burnt offering for your cleansing. Numbers 19, Jesus offers his life. He dies to save us from death. He, he makes atonement for us on the cross. He's the final sufficient offering to cleanse us from our sin and bring us to God. Isaiah promised this, that he would be, he would, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yea, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is a great exchange. Our sin to Jesus his righteousness to us. He bears our sin. We are restored and redeemed to a new life. And one day we will be fully restored. Our souls will be reunited with our bodies and we will reign with him forever and ever, never to die again. So Christian, know that Jesus has this kind of authority, comprehensive authority. Over life and death and demons, disease. But there's a therefore. Therefore, you can trust him. You can trust him. Therefore, you are not alone. Therefore, you do not need to be afraid. Therefore, you can trust God's ordering of your life. 
his sovereign ordering of your life. That he's working even, even through interruptions, even through suffering. He's working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Friend, are you relying on him in your desperation, in your trial? Are you preparing for that time? It may be smooth sailing right now. Are you ready for that time when it's not? Even when death comes to call, we can rest in the one who's conquered it. One of the most beautiful things about the local church is that we have people like this woman here, and we have people like Jairus here from very different experiences, very different backgrounds. But the thing we all have in common is that we're all brought together in Jesus. And God means to get a particular glory from that. That makeup of our church is no accident. God composed it and is composing it with Jesus at the center. And so we're here to testify to his greatness and his kindness, to, to, to walk with him together, to trust him together. So let me invite you to trust him with us, to walk with him with us. So don't fear, only believe. Let's pray. Lord, we know that often when we come to your word, you are meeting us directly where we are. We know that often you are preparing us for where we are going. And uh, Lord, we, of course, don't know that. We're not privy to that information. The secret things belong to you, but those revealed to us and to our children. And so we pray that we would make good use of those things, those precious anchors that you give us in life, we would make good use of those things. By the power of your Spirit, we would apply them. And for some of us, that means simply turning from fear. It means walking in the peace that we already have. For some of us, it means putting our faith and trust in Jesus for the first time and trusting him for all of our life. Lord, wherever we are, we pray that by your Spirit, you would help us, you would open our eyes, that we wouldn't scoff, that we wouldn't laugh, but that we would see things the way that you do and that we would find great hope in you. We pray that you would do this in our midst, Lord. Pray that you would do this for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.